podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. What's good, boys and girls? Two-footed podcast on Tuesday, the 6th of September, brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geoblocked from, while also keeping your data safe. For example, if you want BBC iPlayer, if you're a UK expat and you want to watch Match of the Day, a Liberty Shield VPN will get you where you want to go and keep your data safe. Go to libertyshield.com right now. Use the code EPL25. That's EPL25 to get 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. And finally, do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you can find on Etsy, Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 to get 25% off at checkout. Do remember to check out the other podcasts from EPL Index. We've got a tad predictable, comes out every Premier League match week, hosted by Tadiwa, always good. Make sure you're listening. It's on this feed, so you don't have to go anywhere else. And there is the EPL Roundtable. You'll find that on its own feed, EPL Roundtable. Normally hosted by Kevin DeVries, but this week, Jake Jackman in the hosting chair, and he does a really good job, so make sure you're listening to that. Right, folks, winners and losers from this weekend's Premier League. So, the first winner, I'm going to say Aston Villa, because everybody expected them to get walloped, and they did get comprehensively outplayed, but... They got a point. And that point might just give Steven Gerrard a bit of breathing space. And their next four games are Leicester away and Leicester are bottom of the league. Southampton at home, Leeds away and Forest away. Sorry, Leeds at... Yeah, Leeds away, Forest away. So it is three or four away from home. But they're all winnable games. We shouldn't mistake Villa's poor start for Villa being a poor team. There are good players in that team. A lot of them. Matty Cash is a good right back. Esri Konza is a good centre back. He had a ropey year last year. Absolutely. The year before, he's one of the best centre backs in the division. Luca Dina is a good left back. Emi Martinez is one of the best goalkeepers in the league. Bubakar Kamara is an outstanding young defensive midfielder. Jacob Ramsey is one of the best young midfielders in Europe. Douglas Luiz is a good player. Ollie Watkins is a good player. Emi Buendia is a good player. And Leon Bailey is a talented player. Now, I wouldn't call, go as far as to call him a good player because he's not consistent enough, but there's a lot of talent there. And then there's the likes of Coutinho and John McGinn and Danny Ings, who on their day can add quite a lot to a team. 
there is the makings of something at Aston Villa. My belief is they're a good team waiting for a good manager. I just don't think Steven Gerrard's a good manager. Maybe he will become one at some point down the line, but he's not right now. He got given the Villa job far too early. And he hasn't dealt with it well. But having gotten a point against City, and remember, they caused City a lot of trouble twice last year. Just after he took over at Villa Park and then at the end of the season at the Etihad. So he does know how to play against certain teams, how to set his team up, how to get the best of them. What he needs to figure out is how to do that in the other run-of-the-mill games. And they've got four run-of-the-mill games coming up. And again, they're all winnable games because Leicester have had a terrible start and seem to have given up on the manager. Southampton, we know, are always inconsistent. Leeds, there's an inconsistency too. And Forest are newly promoted. And it's been a mixed bag with them so far. Leicester are bottom of the league. Forest are second bottom. Leeds and Southampton are in that mid-table group. There's no reason Villa can't look to take somewhere between, let's say, 8 and eight and 12 points. There's really no reason that they couldn't look to do that over these four games. And maybe they can just take confidence from that game against City. We saw them last season when Gerard took over. They got a bit of a new manager bounce, obviously, but... There was a bit of confidence in the team and they were playing with a vibrancy that just disappeared kind of around Christmas time. And if you can get that back, and we saw it in the second half, when he when he took John McGinn off and went to the Ramsey, Kamara, Luis midfield three, Villa looked so much better. They looked like a real football team. And I think if he's got the guts to drop John McGinn, who's been awful this season, I think Villa could get their season going because it hasn't really gotten going so far. They beat Everton. They should have beaten Everton. Everton are poor. But look at the rest of the results. Lose to Bournemouth. Got destroyed by Palace. 3-1 flattered Villa. Lost to West Ham. Lost to Arsenal. The season hasn't gotten going for Villa at all. Now is a chance for them to get it going. And I think that point was was a big show that they can put it up to good teams. Because there's a good team there. There's the makings of something there. Next big winner, I would say, Brighton. I thought they were absolutely outstanding against Leicester. I thought some of the football they played was tremendous. I'm not a big Solly March fan, but I think the inverted wing backs of him on one side and Trossard on the other is a really interesting tactical quirk from Graham Potter. And thus far this season, it has worked well. The midfield was magnificent. Absolutely magnificent. Alexis McAllister has been one of the best players in the league so far this year. Moises Casado very quietly might be the best young defensive central midfielder in Europe after the likes of 
Chuameni and Kamavinga. And even Chuameni is more of a defensive midfielder. Kamavinga is that sort of more defensive central midfielder. He's probably the best. Caicedo might be right up there. He's really, really good. He does everything well. And Wepu, I, I'm so impressed by his ball carrying, the, the force he brought to the team. The drive he brought to that midfield was really, really impressive. So I think Brighton have to go down as big winners. For Brighton to score five goals in a game as well, uh, given their issues with scoring goals over the last couple of years, this is a team who scored 42 goals in 38 games last season. Uh, the year before, 40 in 38. The year before that... 39 in 48 in, in 38. The year before that, 35 in 38. And the year before that, 34 in 38. Um, yeah, like every season they have gone up a little bit. So this season, you'd probably be penciling them in for 45 goals if the trend continued. Uh, but they have 11 in six because of their five goals. And if they can do that to a couple more teams, you know, they might even hit 50. I was really impressed with everything I saw from them. The other big winners are the other big winners. It's Brentford because not just the results, and it was a result against the Leeds team that have started the season pretty well and are playing good football. But the fact that Ivan Tony is in this kind of form already is really, really promising. Now, he did start last season well as well and then tailed off. But he just looks like a different beast this year. Like, he's already got five goals and three assists in seven games across the league and League Cup. Eight goal involvements in 558 minutes. So he's scoring and creating. And if you saw him a lot last year, you'll know that he was robbed of probably seven or eight assists where he put things on the plate for the likes of Mbomo, who just missed countless sitters. Last season, he got 14 and six, 14 and six in all competitions. I think he's going to blow that out of the water this year. I think Ivan Tony across all competitions this year will be 20 and 10 at a minimum. I think he's playing brilliantly and I think he really should be in the next England squad. Because outside of Harry Kane, I'm not sure there's a better English striker right now. Tammy Abraham is exceptionally good and he's playing really well for Roma. We know that Calvert-Lewin is good, but he's injured and has been for over, well, a year now. It's about a year since he got hurt. Um... I think it is about a year since he got hurt. Didn't he get hurt in the fifth or sixth game last season? I think he did. And, you know, Ollie Watkins is a bit a bit inconsistent for my liking. I, I do think outside of Harry Kane, Ivan Tony might be the best English striker right now. And I know that if I was given the keys to manage an Aston Villa, for example, Ivan Tony is somebody I would look to buy. Because I think Ivan Tony and Ollie Watkins as a two would be horrendous to try and defend against. Absolutely horrendous. 
You get goals and creativity with Tony. You'll get goals and work rate and the ability to work the wide channels from Watkins. Both of them horrible in the horrible to deal with in the air. Both of them press really well and relentlessly. I'd like to see those two play together. That's just me. But if I was in charge of Aston Villa, I'd be bringing him in. Even if you're playing a three, play him through the middle, play Watkins off the left. I don't know who I'd play on the right. It wouldn't be Leon Bailey. Probably look to bring someone in or play Buendia on the right. But either way, it doesn't matter. For Brentford, for them to stay up, they're going to need a lot of goals from Ivan Tony. And it looks like they're going to get a lot of goals from Ivan Tony. And he's going to create goals for others as well. So they'd be my three winners. Aston Villa, Brighton, and Brentford. I would also put Manchester United into this group of winners as well. Because it's four wins on the bounce. And regardless of the fact that they're playing the same brand of football they played under Ollie, and it's very reminiscent of when Ollie took over as caretaker, they're winning games. And regardless of the fact that Arsenal are the most fugazi team in Europe right now, they were top of the league. They had won five games in a row and they did come in full of confidence. And United cut them apart. United cut them apart. United made them look so naive, excuse me, so naive. And defensively, they just made a show of them. They made a show of Arsenal's defence. They spotted the weaknesses and they exploited them time and time again. And 3-1 wasn't really reflective of the game that we saw. That could easily have been 4-1. 5 1, maybe, because there were probably three good opportunities late in the game where, had the pass been a little bit better, Cristiano Ronaldo would have been in. Or even earlier, there was a couple of attacks that broke down in that second to last phase and could have led to goals. It's funny, I saw. An Arsenal fan yesterday, I think it was, talking about Ramsdale. And he was saying, you know, he's got some things to improve on, but when you look at his technical level and his mentality, he can be world-class. And I just, I found it the most strange thing I'd read in a couple of days, because when I look at great goalkeepers, now I mean great goalkeepers, So let's go back to Peter Schmeichel. Peter Schmeichel would only lose his temper or show emotion to scream at defenders. But other than that, he was a very calm person and you didn't see him celebrate his saves or anything like that. Move forward, Oliver Kahn was the same. He kept his defenders in line, but Other than that, you didn't see much in the way of emotion from him, other than when the game was over. He wasn't one that celebrated saves. You look at the two best keepers on the planet now, Alison Becker and probably still Manuel Naur, and I think you could even throw Jan Oblak in. I know he had a bad season last year, but let's say Jan Oblak. They're your top three. And actually, 
Thibaut Courtois is another one. So take those four, right? Those are the four best keepers in the world. Alistair, Neuer, or Neuer, Oblak, and Courtois. In whatever order you want. And look at their personalities. Look at their... Look at the aura that they give off. Calmness. Very little emotion. Focus. Incredible focus. A focus is a part of mentality. And then look at Aaron Ramsdale. And even as in terms of great goalkeepers, look at the likes of Casillas and, in my view, the best keeper ever, Gigi Buffon. No outwardly emotion. No displays of celebration because you've made a save. Just focus. Aaron Ramsdale and Jordan Pickford, they celebrate shots that they didn't save if they don't go in. Remember when Bruno Fernandes missed the penalty at the Emirates last season? Ramsdale went the wrong way and then got up and celebrated it as if he'd done something. Pickford was beaten by Mo Salah's shot at the weekend and hit the post and didn't go in and he celebrated like he'd done something. That type of mentality does not lead to being a world-class keeper, in my view. And then you look at the likes of fundamentals, footwork, basic handling. Ramsdale isn't in any way good in those regards. His footwork is awful. His positioning is dreadful. I don't see a world-class goalkeeper in Aaron Ramsdale at all. He's a good passer of the ball. But I think mentality-wise, I think he's poor. I think there's far too much emotion with him. And I think he's also one that struggles with concentration. And fundamentally, he's just not a top-class goalkeeper or anything close to it. I think Arsenal fans have deluded themselves with some of these players. Loading Ben White. Been average this season. It's awful against United. Poor against Fulham. What is there to load? You paid 50 million for him as a centre-back. He's now playing right-back. And you've got a better right-back sitting on the bench in Tomiyasu. Losers of the weekend were going Arsenal number one. Because I think they got exposed. And I think we'll see more and more teams set up the way United did. Deep block and hit them on the counter. Second loser of the weekend, I think is football fans, because I think VAR robbed us of some a great goal at Brighton. An equaliser in a good game at Stamford Bridge. Like I said yesterday, I don't think the Coutinho one was all that controversial because City did stop. But the referee has apologised for his mistake. So he did make a mistake. Obviously, Newcastle will feel robbed of three points. Or, well, of two points because they got one because of the, of the, the goal that was disallowed. So I think well, VAR slash football fans is, is number two. And number three is, is Leicester City. And uh, Jesus wept. I, this is... 
I don't know how they're this bad because that's not a bad group of players at all. There's lots of talent there. But the Rodgers effect is in full is in full flow. Brendan Rodgers makes every defensive player he works with worse. The longer he's there, the worse they get. That's just how he is. There's no real evidence to support the idea that he develops players all that well either. What he does is he indulges players. So when he was at Liverpool, he indulged Luis Suarez. He threw his entire approach to football out the window in December of 2012. He'd been appointed in the summer. It was going badly. His job was coming under threat. And he threw out his philosophy and all the rest. Turned the team over to Suarez and played to the strengths of Suarez. And indulged Luis Suarez and allowed him to be the best version of him. That's not development. That's indulgence. When Suarez left, he did the same thing with Coutinho. He indulged Coutinho's bad habits. The shooting from 35 yards, which, you know, one in 20 might fly into the net. But otherwise, he's just assaulting people in the stand with footballs. He's done the same thing at Leicester with James Madison. He hasn't reined in James Madison and made him a more tactically aware player. He's just allowed him to play as if he's kick having a kick about. And that's not player development. Because in the long haul, Madison is worse off for that. And this is not exclusive to Brendan Rodgers. A lot of managers are like this. This is one of the reasons I, I don't believe Steven Gerrard reached his full potential. Because I don't believe anyone until he got Rafa Benitez as his club manager and Fabio Capello as his international manager. I don't believe anyone ever tried to rein him in. And by that point, he was, what, mid-20s? He'd been indulged up to that point and allowed to just do whatever it was that he wanted to do. And that had a big effect on his tactical development, which is why Gerard was never a great central midfielder. He was world-class as a 10 world-class as a right-winger or right-sided midfielder and excellent off the left for England, but never a great central midfielder. Frank Lampard was largely the same. Harry Redknapp indulged him. Mourinho indulged him, tried to rein him, realised he was wasting his time and then just indulged him. It's not exclusive to Rodgers at all. But Rogers claims that he's a great developer of players because he likes to take credit for natural progression. And he's the type that will take credit for all that's good and then blame others for all that's bad, which is what he's doing at Leicester. Now, he did at least have the humility to come out after the Brighton game and say, oh, that result is on me. It is. So were all of last season's and so were the results so far this season. But this is the first time you're admitting it. And this is after you came out after the last game and said that the reason you're in the mess you're in is because the owners didn't back you in the transfer market. But they have backed you and you haven't made use of the players. And you've bought badly. And they're not backing you anymore because you failed to get them into the Champions League, which is, number one, what you promised them you'd do. 
and number two, what you spent to do and had the opportunities to do while big six clubs were going through rebuilds and other things, you had opportunities to get top four and you bottled it twice. And you did win the FA Cup and congrats to you for that. But the bottom line is you were set up to get top four. And if you had, the club would be in a better financial state. But Leicester are not in a particularly rosy financial state. They've been spending way beyond their means for a number of years now. And the defensive base that Claude Puel left behind has been completely eroded through Rodgers' coaching. The likes of Ndidi have been overplayed to the point that he's frequently injured now. And while you indulged the attackers and got a lot out of them for a number of years, that is now coming home as an issue because teams have figured you out and teams are man-marking the likes of James Madison. So it's all bad for Leicester at the moment. I just don't see how he can survive. Up next, like I mentioned, they've got Villa. Then they get Tottenham. Then it's the international break. And as I said yesterday, I think he's gone in the international break. But if they lose heavily to Villa, or even if they lose to Villa, I think he probably should go then. And just, you know, spend the week leading into the international break finding your manager. Have them take over on the Monday. Give them that full two weeks. I know some players will be away with their international teams, but still, let them get settled in for a couple of weeks. Then you get Forrest, then Bournemouth. That's two winnable games for the new manager. Then Palace at home, Leicester home. That is four winnable games for a new manager. With that squad, four winnable games. Uh, so they're the winners and losers from this weekend. Um, one bit of news while I'm remembering it. Uh, Diego Costa... Uh, Wolves are attempting to sign him. David Ornstein broke that news. Uh, but he has been denied a work permit because he hasn't played enough, basically. So under the old rules, he would have qualified no problem. But under the Brexit rules, he does not have enough points. Wolves are appealing the decision. Um, they're still hoping to have him undergo a medical but for now, he's not going to be able to sign. And John Percy has reported, if if that wasn't bad enough news for Wolves fans, John Percy has reported, and like Percy is as good as it comes, that plan B is Andy Carroll. Andy Carroll. Oh, dear. That is less than ideal. Less than ideal. But when you look at the players who are currently uh, free agents, uh, the forward options, the best option after Diego Costa is probably Mattia Vidra, who's never really shown he's good enough to play in the Premier League on a regular basis. Uh, probably shouldn't have loaned out Fabio Silva, but that is with hindsight. That is with hindsight. Um, yeah, not ideal. Not ideal for Wolves. Uh, right, let's go. Champions League is back tonight. The real deal, the group stage. And we've got some really good games on tonight. So 
we've got the 5.45 kickoffs, of which there are two, and the 8pm kickoffs, of which there are six. So you get Dinamo Zagreb versus Chelsea. Could be Aubameyang's debut for Chelsea. I'm hopeful Thomas Tuchel will go to a back four for this game and play Reese James, Wes Fafana, Kaladu Koulibaly and Mark Cucurella and see how they look together as a four. Go with a three in midfield, Kovacic, maybe Zakaria, see what he can offer, and Mount. And then in attack, I would go Sterling, Havertz, Aubameyang, right to left. That's what I would do. I don't know that he'll do the same. I don't expect him to do the same. But that's what I would do. Because I'd be interested to see how it would work. Oba does have a broken jaw. That is a very good point, Guy. Yeah, if Oba has a broken jaw, then scratch that and play Pulisic, I suppose, as the other winger. Probably the best option if he's fit. If he's fit. Uh, you've also got, at the same time, Borussia Dortmund versus FC Copenhagen. Dortmund currently second in the Bundesliga. Had a pretty good start of the year. Uh, that should be a pretty interesting game. Copenhagen played decent football, but you'd expect Dortmund to come through as winners, as you'd expect Chelsea to win in Zagreb. At 8pm then, there's some really interesting games. So Benfica against Maccabi Haifa is probably the least interesting of the of the games. Um, but Sevilla against Man City could be fun. Sevilla now have had a really bad start to the season. And I know there's a lot of pressure starting to come on Julian Lopetegui. Um, no wins from their four games. Only the one point. Uh, three goals scored, eight conceded. They lost both starting centre-backs and it hasn't really gone well so far. So, City will be expected to go and win that game fairly comfortably. But, Sevilla in Europe are always a, you know, always a tough out. Um, I'll be curious to see if, if he starts Haaland tonight. I don't think he will. I think he might start Alvarez. No real reason to start Haaland unless you're in the last couple of games and you need to win them. You could probably rest them through most of the group stage. Uh, Salzburg versus Milan should be fun. Salzburg always have a couple of players worth keeping an eye on. Uh, Luka Sucic is probably the one this year. And for Milan, just watch to see Rafael Leao. He's one of the best young attackers in world football and has started the season incredibly well. Uh, RB Leipzig versus Shakhtar. Leipzig have had a bad start as well. And there's a lot of pressure now starting to build on Tedesco, the manager. They currently sit 11th in the Bundesliga, one win from five. And it has not been very pretty. They were walloped by Eintracht Frankfurt at the weekend, 4-0. And it um, will be no surprise if they make a change in manager quite soon. Maybe it wasn't all Jesse Marsh's fault. Uh, Shakhtar... I don't even know who still plays for Shakhtar because they've had to sell or let a bunch of players go because of the war. This game, obviously, 
is a home game for Leipzig. But for what would be their home games, they're going to have to play them uh, at neutral venues, which is less than ideal. Uh, transfers out. Marcus Antonio gone. David Neres gone. Fernando gone. Dodo gone. Ishmaeli gone. A whole bunch of players loaned as well. All of the Brazilian contingents seem to be gone. Uh, yeah, all of the Brazilian contingents. Oh, no, there's one left. Uh, Lucas Taylor, who I think might just be a pretend Brazilian. He's in on loan at the moment. Uh, but other than them, it is... Oh, Lasana Traore is still there. And Nevin Durasek, the, uh, the Croatian. He's still there. Other than that, it is all Ukrainian players. All of the Brazilians are gone, bar the fake Brazilian. I'm not having someone with a surname of Taylor as a, as a Brazilian. I'm just not having that at all. No. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, should be an interesting game. PSG versus Juve. I think this might end really badly for Juve. I don't like this Juve team. I think they've been really poorly constructed. I think they're fairly poorly managed as well. I think Max Allegri might need to go. There's just something wrong. And I don't even know that it's him and not just the club. But something is not right at Juve and hasn't been since he came back. He was a really, really good manager when he was there the last time. And now he just doesn't seem to know what he wants to do. And he has become a footballing terrorist. I mean, they, he's playing a donut midfield. There's absolutely nothing in the centre of the park for them. Game of the night, though. Game of the night is Celtic versus Real Madrid. This game is both a clash of European royalty and David versus Goliath. You get the first ever British winners of the European Cup versus the 14-time and current holders of the European Cup. You get Scotland's finest, Scottish Premiership. It's, well, the standard overall is League One in, in England. Versus La Liga's finest. And La Liga after the Premier League is probably the best league around. So, in some ways, you would expect Real to win and wipe the floor with Celtic. But, but, Celtic Park is an incredible stadium. On a, on a normal Saturday for a normal league game, it's got a great atmosphere. On a Tuesday or Wednesday night for a Champions League game, I think it might be the best atmosphere in world football. That place will be bouncing from about an hour before kickoff and will not not stop bouncing until the final whistle is blown. And if Celtic win, it might not stop bouncing until tomorrow night. And Postacoglu has this Celtic team playing, I think, the most attractive football in Europe. Like, they play like a hybrid of Liverpool at their best and City at their best. It's the tempo and aggression of Liverpool and the patterns and automations of City. 
but it's not as like when City play, it feels quite clinical. It feels quite cold. This is a bombastic approach to football. Now, it comes with issues. One of the reasons Pat plays such a clinical approach is to slow the tempo down so that if his team lose the ball, the game is not in a state of flux and they don't get countered on, at least not very often. Celtic can be countered on. They will often overcommit. It's, I mean, Bielsa ball is is a similar type of approach. This is not as wild as Bielsa ball, but it's got that same sort of feel to it. It's incredible to watch. If you haven't seen Celtic this year or last year, I, I really do. I really do think you should go and watch them. Like, this season, they beat Aberdeen 2-0. They beat Ross County 3-0. They beat Kilmarnock 5-0. They beat Hearts 2-0. They beat Dundee 9-0. They beat Ross County 4-1. And then they beat Rangers 4-0. Like, they're destroying teams. And they're getting better by the week. Like, that 4-0... Celtic were cruising in the second half. That could easily have been six or seven. The second half was like a training session. And last year, they were they were just brilliant to watch. They really were phenomenally good to watch. I, I think they're the most entertaining side in Europe. And there's players in that team that you might not be all that aware of if you don't follow Scottish football and you don't follow Celtic. But there's players there that are just so much fun to watch. Like, defensively, there's no there's no real standout defensively. There's no one that you'd look at and say, well, he could go and play for X, Y, and Z. But there's just... Good defenders there. Now, I do quite like uh, Juranovic, the right-back, the Croatian. Um, I, I think he's been really, really good since joining. Cameron Carter-Vickers has done well. Uh, Moritz Jens has done well. Starfeld has been good since he came in. There's no real star there. And Joe Hart is the goalkeeper. And, I mean, Joe Hart had been written off by a lot of people, but Anne just got him playing probably the best football of the last, what, six, seven years of Joe Hart's career? I'm trying to think when the last time Joe Hart was good. I'm guessing probably 14, 15. He didn't have a great season in 15, 16. Yeah, Joe Hart, and Joe Hart is is outright playing well for Celtic. But midfield is where it gets really fun. Matt O'Reilly is... Really, really impressive. David Turnbull is excellent. Aaron Moy is a good player. Rio Hatete might be my favourite player to watch in this team. Callum McGregor's the captain. He sits in the middle of the park and just kind of holds things together. And then up front, it, it's just... It's like Murderer's Row. 
Like these guys will cause problems for everybody. Gia Kamakis, the Greek striker, really, really impressive. Really, really impressive. Since he arrived, he has just banged in goals left, right, and center. Lyle Abada, he's definitely destined for big things. The Israeli striker can play wide, can play through the middle, just pace, great movement, super intelligent. Kyogo Furuhashi, I'd never heard of him. He arrived and he's just been sensational ever since. If he can stay fit, he might get 40 goals this season in all competitions. That's how good he is. And then there's Jota. There's also Dyson Maeda, the Japanese guy. Um, he's had a poor start to the season, but he can score goals. He's a good poacher. But Jota, Jota might be the best player in this team. Last season, he was really good. This season, he's taken his game to a new level. Plays wide, but he's involved in everything. His movement is sensational. His passing is great. He's an outstanding finisher. If you're not watching Celtic, you are missing out. Now, they might get beaten tonight, but they will get beaten having a go. They will go for the throat of Real Madrid tonight. They will not take one backward step. Real are coming to their gaff. And they won't be graceful hosts. They'll be not looking to knock lumps at a Real Madrid. And I don't mean physically kick them. I mean cut them apart with their movement, with their overloads, with their automations, their transition play. Seriously, make sure you watch this game. It, it There's no way this game is not enjoyable. Unless Real hammer them. In which case it won't be enjoyable. But it'll still be fun. It'll still be fun. So there you're. Champions League games for tonight. I'm going to take a break. When we come back, we'll have a quick look at the transfers I missed at the end of last week. I'll see you in a sec. Right, welcome back. So... Let's go through all 20 teams and see what they did in the last days of the window. So Arsenal didn't bring anybody in. Just the five signings for them. Um, we can move on. Aston Villa made two additions in the last days of the window. So first one, Jan Bednarak coming in from Southampton uh, on a loan. Little bit surprised that Saints were so willing to let him leave, but Belakotchup has started the season so well that it was kind of understandable in that regard. He wasn't going to get the minutes he wanted and obviously wants to be um to be playing regularly. So from his point of view, I could see it. Whether he'll play regularly at Villa or not, I don't know. I have a tough time seeing it. But I do think him and Konza could be interesting. His lack of pace is a concern. They also brought in Leander Dendonker. Now, I was surprised Wolves let him go, but he was going into the last year of his contract. And to be fair, overall, he's probably been a little bit of a disappointment for Wolves. He's never nailed down a regular starting spot in midfield. He's probably played more centre-back than midfield for Wolves. Good player. Solid midfield addition 
for for Villa. Uh, plenty of Premier League experience. So all things considered, they're both seven out of ten kind of signings. They're both reliable, dependable players. They don't raise the ceiling of the squad, but they give it a bit more depth. Bournemouth then, a um, little bit surprised they didn't do more. I thought once Parker went out, they might have just brought in a couple more players, but they didn't. And um, Oh, they did. Sorry, they brought in Jack Stevens on loan. Now, again, that's two centre-backs now gone from, from Southampton on loan, which is a bit of a risk. It's a bit of a risk. If someone gets hurt now, they could be in trouble. But Jack Stevens isn't particularly good at the Premier League level. He is more of a championship level centre-back. And if they're going to play a back three, which who knows now what they're going to do, because we don't know who the manager's going to be yet. Um, I, I don't know about Jack Stevens on the right of a three. I know he's played there before, but it's not ideal. Brentford, they stood past. They had their five signings in. Still think they left themselves maybe one, possibly two short. But they made a decision to hold, hold with what they had. And I expect that they'll go in January and try and add one or two more. There were some links in the last couple of days of the window. Um, the Ukrainian winger is at Murich. Uh, he was been linked, but nothing came of it. So we'll wait and see what they do. Um, Brighton signed Billy Gilmore from Chelsea. And I don't mind this signing because they got him for $9 million, which isn't a huge amount of money. And what it does is it gives them cover for Alexis McAllister, which I think they were going to need because you can't just run McAllister out there game after game after game. And Billy Gilmore, with time on the ball, is a good player. And if he's got the likes of Mwepu and Caicedo and Modo when he comes back in and around him, he'll get some time on the ball and he'll have receivers that he can find through the lines. So, yeah, I don't mind that signing at all. Again, I still think they left themselves short, but I'll go into more detail about leaving themselves short when I speak to Kevin on Thursday, which we'll hopefully put out. We might put it out Friday instead of the normal Friday pod. I'll see. I'll see. Um, Chelsea, they got the Wes Fafana deal done. It's a big overpay, but he is a really, really good young defender. They also brought in Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. And they got Dennis Zakaria on loan from Juve. Now, Fafana, I, I really want to see him and Koulibaly in a two. With Reese James at right back and Cucurella at left back. I really want to see that group together. I, I think that has the potential to be really good. Really, really good. Like one of the best defences in Europe. Individually and collectively, that's very, very strong. Aubameyang, it just depends which Aubameyang you get, really, doesn't it? Because we saw him at Arsenal for 18 months, just sort of drag his arse around. Whereas he went to Barca and he scored for fun. Now, there'd be no scoring for fun under Thomas Tuchel. Oh, no. But he's worked under Tuchel before, and it's probably the best Aubameyang we've ever seen was under Thomas Tuchel. So I, I do think he could work out there for them. Uh, credit to Barcelona. They got him for free in 
January and then got 10 million and Marcus Alonso for him. So, you know, now Marcus Alonso's not great, but he, he gives them a decent backup left back. All things considered, pretty good deal for Barca. Zakaria, I'm not keen on. Um, he was looking like he could develop into a really good player and then he had a bad knee injury and he's never been the same. He's not as dynamic. He's not as powerful. He's not as forceful. He plays like he's worried about re-injuring. He was really bad last season and not great the season before. I wouldn't be overly keen on that, but it's a loan and you can send him back if it doesn't work. So no harm, no foul. Um, surprised that Crystal Palace didn't do more. Surprised they didn't land a right back. Surprised they didn't bring in one more in midfield. I think they've left themselves short, but it is what it is. Everton brought in Neil Mope, uh, James Garner, and Idrissa Gana Gay. Now, Idrissa's past his best, but in certain situations, he's going to be really useful for them. And he can be a good mentor for Onana, who's the kind of the prize signing from their summer. Neil Mope, he's a good player. He's a decent replacement for Richarlison in a lot of ways, but he doesn't really bring you the goals that you're lacking. Garner is the one I'm interested in because he's clearly a player with a lot of talent. He's clearly a very hardworking player. And at 21, he's got his best years ahead of him. He's also from Birkenhead, so he's, you know, he's moving close to home now. Not that Manchester's far, but still. So, you know, he's going to have his family around him. And I, I do think it's an interesting get for them. They haven't paid big money. And I think potentially him and Onana as a pair, that could be really good. Because I think Onana is going to be really special. And if Garner just works out to be a good player, then the pairing can be really good. Overall, Everton had a fairly solid window. Don't like the Cody signing, but it, it is what it is. It's only a loan that you move him on next summer uh, or send him back next summer if need be. The big thing for them was they didn't do anything stupid this summer. Like, there's no bad signing among that group. Fulham. They were busy boys. They brought in Carlos Vinicius from Benfica. I quite like that as a gamble. I think he could play with Mitrovic. He can be back up to Mitrovic. I quite like that. When Spurs had him on loan, there were flashes that he was a very good player. We've seen him be a good player at times. And they got him for a bargain price of four or five million, something like that. Really cheap. Uh, they signed Willian the free, but, you know. Uh, they brought in Kurzawa to be backup left back, starting left back. I'm not really sure. Anthony Robinson started the season well, but Kurzawa will push him. I think he'll come expecting to be a starter. So I, I like that signing on a loan. And then they brought in Dan James. And I saw a lot of people slag this move off and look you can see why Dan James has never really impressed at the Premier League bar the first probably four weeks he was at United he is primarily a sprinter but in late game situations when you want to stretch the field Dan James is a hell of an option and 
if he gets confident, he's a good finisher. And if you want to park a bus and launch long balls up to Mitrovic and have someone breaking to get on to flick downs, someone with Dan James's pace, not a bad option. It's a loan. There's no risk involved. You probably paid a small loan fee. I I don't mind the signing at all. Leeds signed Wilfred Nanto, and I think that's at four million, one of the bargains of the summer. I I think he's really talented. He's already been called up for the Italian national team. I don't know how they got him for four million. That's incredible to me that they got him for that price. I think Leeds had quietly a very good window, and I think they improved. They left themselves a centre-back short, but again, that's for another day. Uh, Leicester signed Woot Faze, the centre-back from Reims, to replace Fafana, and that was all they did. And um, Danny Ward is their first-choice goalkeeper, which, you know, it's a thing. Uh, Liverpool brought in Arthur Mello on loan from Juventus. I, I like the player. I think he obviously had a poor time at Juventus. His time at Barca didn't go great either. But look at the managers he played under. Valverde and Allegri, two guys that don't allow their centre midfielders to express themselves at all. And Pirlo, who didn't really know what he was doing, in fairness. So I think if... Klopp can get Arthur and use him in that Thiago role. He could be the ideal backup to Thiago and give Liverpool uh, a, a quality conductor in that midfield, which they, they do lack when the, the Spaniard is injured. So I, I like the deal. I do. Um, Manchester City brought in Manuel Akanji. See, this is what really good teams do. They had an injury issue. They addressed it. They brought in a good player. And look, Akanji, he hasn't developed well at all over the last couple of years. He's really stagnated. He was he went there from Basel. He was doing really well. Him and Diallo was looking like a really bright partnership. Zagadou was there and he was the cover. And all things were good at centre-back for Dortmund. And then they decided to sign Mats Hummels and sell Diallo. And it, it just never worked. It never worked. It never worked for Kanji. It never worked for Hummels. Akanji went backwards. Hummels fell off a cliff. And Zagadou, I mean, the guy is still a free agent. That's where his career has gone. The tra- he became a free agent in June and is still a free agent now. So that's what's happened to him. Um, but I, I do think there's a lot of talent in Akanji. Now, he's, is he 26, maybe? What age is Akanji? 27. So he's in his prime years, but I think Pep will get something out of him. I think City's system will suit him well as well. He's got really good distribution, and I think that will will play well at City. Uh, Manchester United uh, completed the overpay of the summer when they brought in Anthony for £75 million. Um, They also signed Martin Dubravka on loan from Newcastle, and I don't mind that move. If you're going to sign a backup for De Gea, Dubravka is pretty good. Um, all things considered, United fans can't complain at all about how they, how their owner owners allowed them to spend. I don't think they spent well, but they spent a lot. And uh, they vote not that they haven't spent well. They the players they brought in individually, I don't mind, 
Um, it's just that they've overpaid for so many of them. Like Ajax have made out like bandits this year, haven't they? Newcastle, they got the ISEC deal done. I think I was still around when that one happened. And that was it. They, they kind of kept their powder dry from there. Nottingham Forest, because why not? Just continued to go absolutely buck wild and bring players in. Um, so they brought in Renan Lodi and I think Czech Koyate the last time I was on. But uh, Josh Bowler brought in from Blackpool. A talented player, but he's a winger. And you don't play with wingers at all. So I don't really understand that one. Um, he's one, though, he's an interesting one because he came through QPR's academy. He bounced around academies with, with Fulham, Aldershot, QPR. Everton signed him and never gave him a chance. Now, he's been pretty good for Blackpool. Um, and I, I can see why Forrest have done it, get him in at a cheap price. But you don't play with wingers, so it's just a little bit, a little bit strange. They've loaned him to Olympiacos, and I hope he does really well. I hope he enjoys living in Greece and does really well. Um, but I think I think Loic Bade is one of the one of the best signings of the summer. I think he's a fantastic defender. Um, didn't have a great year last year at Ren, but that was largely because he didn't get the opportunities that he should have got. But when he was at Lens, he was brilliant. That first that season he was there, he was brilliant. Um, I, I'm really excited to see what he can do in this Nottingham Forest team. For me, I'd be playing him on the right, Worrell in the middle, and Niakata on the left. Or Niakata in the middle and McKenna on the left. I think Worrell or McKenna are the two now at risk. Worrell just hasn't started the season well. The right side of the three doesn't suit him. Not in the Premier League. It's too quick for him. They've got to get Steve Cook out of the team, though. And Bade has got to get into that team because he he has so much potential. So much potential. I think it's a really good signing. I really like it. They've been they've been crazy busy this summer. 5, 10, 15, 20, 21 signings. Now, they did lose like 18 players from last year's squad. So they had to go and go big and bring in a bunch of players. And obviously... The likes of Aguilera and Huang and Bowler, they've all been loaned out, so they won't be part of the squad this year, but it does future-proof them a little bit. And um, I think a deal for Michi Batshuayi fell through on deadline day because Chelsea forgot to send over paperwork or something, which is a bit disappointing, but I'm not sure they needed Michi Batshuayi. I think that would have just complicated things in attack even more than things already are. Uh, Southampton... Well, they got real excited um, once the window started to close. They brought in Ainsley Maitland-Niles on loan. I really like that signing. I have to say, I really do like that signing. Versatile, can play either fullback spot as a wing back or in midfield. I really like the signing of Ainsley Maitland-Niles. I think Forrest should have grabbed him. Or not Forrest, uh, Palace should have grabbed him on loan. Um, now, Juan, Lar Lar Juan Larios, the youngster they brought in from Manchester City, 
who I believe is a left back, is apparently super talented, but I've never seen him play. He was in Barca's academy, moved to City, and now Southampton have snapped him up for six million, a twenty percent sell-on clause, a buyback clause, and an option to match any further offer. These are the same kind of deals they've done with City for Basunu and Lavia. Um, would you wouldn't know that uh, that Southampton's new head of recruitment used to be head of youth recruitment at City, would you? Uh, signing Basunu, Lavia, Larios, and Samuel Idozi. Now, this one I, I think is a great get. I think this kid is really special. And he came on at the weekend and absolutely tortured Wolves. So he's a very exciting one for them to get. They've, again, similar deal. Um, low fee, but sell on clause, buy back and right to match offers, etc., etc. Don't know how much the two kids from City will help them in the short term, but Maitland Niles will. And overall, oh, and I, they got Duja Kaleta Carr as well. What am I thinking? One of the reasons they let Bednarak go was they decided to bring in a new centre-back and they brought in Duja Kaleta Carr, which I'm assuming means they're going to move to a back three of Bella Kotchup, Kaleta Carr and Salisu. And then kind of have Lyanko as the backup, the fourth centre-back. Now, my assumption would be if one of them gets hurt, they probably just go to a back four. But I, my assumption is that they're going to play a back three. And Coletta Carr is a good signing. It's not as good as they could have got, though. They were being linked with Maxence Lacroix. And if they got him, that back three would have been monstrously good. With potential to become incredible. All things considered, I think it was a great last couple of days for Southampton. I think they've done really well. They haven't spent ridiculous money. They haven't sold anybody that's going to hurt them in this season. Couple of loans, but all things considered, really strong window. Tottenham then, they got the Destiny Aduji deal done a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Josh Keeley from Sympaths Athletic I think that's about the only deal they did in the last couple of days so yeah, nothing to discuss there um, West Ham got the Paqueta deal across the line which is phenomenal can't believe he's gone to West Ham and that was probably about it for them uh, Wolves brought in Kalazic but he got injured in his first game and now they're in a bit of trouble but they did get Bubakar Traore from Mets, young box-to-box midfielder. Loan with an option to buy for eleven million. I, I quite like the deal. I do quite like the deal. Um, he was at Mets at the same time as the kid who went to Spurs last summer. What's his name now? Hang on. What is the kid's name? Papa Matar Sar. And to be honest, there wasn't a huge amount between them. Now, Matarasar is definitely the more talented of the two, but Traore was probably the more consistent of the two. Now, based on the bits I saw, 
He's probably more consistent of the two. Um, so yeah, look, good signing for them. And that's it. That is all the deals. So now we can just go through the latest gossip because, you know, what else to talk about when the transfer window is closed other than transfer gossip? Should mention that Paul Pogba is having or has had knee surgery and is now a doubt for the World Cup. Um, so not ideal. Not ideal. He's been injured they decided not to have the surgery and he came back to training and now he's injured again. And realistically, the return timeline is about four months and the World Cup is in two and a half, two and, two and three weeks. Uh, not great for Pogba. Gossip then. German champions Bayern Munich want to sign Gavi with Manchester United and Real Manchester United and Liverpool already believed to be after the 18-year-old Spaniard. Napoli have denied they held any real negotiations for Cristiano Ronaldo. Nobody did. Nobody did, because no one wants him. United are much better without him. Like much better without him. They were much better without him. They signed him. They were garbage. They've dropped him. They're good again. Not Good, but they're better again. Leicester boss Brendan Rodgers is due an eight-figure compensation package if he is sacked following the club's worst start to a season since 1983. Isn't football a mad thing? You can take a job, do badly, get sacked, and get paid off. And someone will absolutely give you another job. Mad. Chelsea will look to sign a new central midfielder in January with Edson Alvarez, their main target. I'm not sure he's their main target, but they were linked with him towards the end of this window. The Blues are keen to agree a new deal with Mason Mount after Reese James committed his future to an improved contract. Um, yeah, it makes sense to, to try and lock down Mason Mount if they can. The agent of Antonio Rudiger says the Germany international was keen to stay at Stamford Bridge, but Chelsea made next to no effort. First of all, he's not the agent of Antonio Rudiger. He's like an intermediary because he's a spoofer. He's also a scumbag, so I wouldn't take anything he says uh, too seriously. AC Milan head coach Stefan Pioli has revealed the club are set to offer Rafael Leao a new contract mid Links with a host of clubs, including Liverpool, and they should be offering him all the money. Mateo Kovacic says he recommended RB Leipzig's 20-year-old Croatian defender Josko Gvardiol to Chelsea during the recent free-spending transfer window. Um, if their scouts didn't already know about him, then sack all the scouts. Brighton are prepared to negotiate with Liverpool in January over the transfer of Moises Casado. That's coming out of, of Ecuador. Who knows if it's true? Former Spain striker Diego Carlos, uh, Diego Costa, rather, and yeah, the work permit nonsense. Um, RB Leipzig's Austrian midfielder Conrad Lehmer says a late move to Liverpool was never on the cards, despite intense speculation during the closing hours of the transfer window. Um, yeah, probably not. And that's it. That is the gossip. That's me for today, folks. I'll see you all tomorrow. Bye bye. <laughs>
Sports Social Podcast Network.